Am I good? Oh, hey, there it is. Hey, so it is an exciting Sunday. Uh, I get to preach, right? No, I, I enjoy it. Um, we're blessed from some incredibly talented and gifted students, um, some students that are not afraid to lead um, and to share their faith. A lot of that is because of y'all investing in them. And so um, this is a, an awesome Sunday of, of celebration as well. So as we dive in um, this morning, diving into Judges 6, if you have your Bibles, there's a, it was a 16 verses that we read. Um, we're going to skip through those a little bit. Um, but as you dive into the book of Judges, there's something that you need to understand about that book. There is an overall theme in that book, and it is one of repetition over and over and over again. The people of Israel do the same thing. We say the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. In the book of Judges, the Israelites keep messing up. They keep turning from God and worshiping false idols. Continuously, they turn from God, they worship false idols, and because of that, God gets angry. With reason, they're his chosen people. They're supposed to worship him alone. And time and time again, he shows them that he hasn't forgotten them because he sends someone when in his wrath. He sends a foreign oppressor, a king, a people, a country to oppress the Israelites. And they're in slavery or in bondage. And eventually they understand, hey, our situation's happening the way it is because we're not following God. Our situation is the way it is because we have abandoned God and worshipped idols. So they cry out. They repent. God, forgive us. We're sorry. Help us. And God, in his grace and mercy, delivers them. He sends them a judge. That's where this book gets its name. He sends them a judge that will defeat their oppressor and free the people of Israel. But after each judge, you'll read a passage that says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. After every time we realize, oh man, we need God. Help us, save us. God says, all right, I'll do that generation or two later, ah, we're going to start worshiping some false idols again. This cycle, for those of you that are note takers, this cycle is really easy to remember with the word sword. The sin of Israel, the wrath of God, the oppression of a foreign person, the repentance of Israel, and then the deliverance via a judge. And so when you read Judges, this is the cycle. And Israel's been living under the Midianites. They've been living, as it says in Judges 6, uh, verses 2 through 6, it starts off saying that because of the Midians, the people of Israel made for themselves dens in the caves and the mountains. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them in Israel, so no sheep, no ox, and no donkey were safe. For they would come up against their livestock in their tents, and they would be like locusts in number, and their camels could not be counted, and they would lay waste to the land as they came in. Israel was brought very low because of Midian. This is the oppression. In our story, Midian is oppressing Israel. Things are so bad, they're living in caves. In caves. And they say, God, we're sorry. Could you help us out? Is there something you could do? And they repent, and God says, I'll raise up a judge. 
And that's where our story picks up this morning in Judges 6, 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under Terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. You love this because God comes to Gideon where he is. He's literally doing a chore where God shows up. And he's doing this chore in a place that no one should normally do this chore. He's beating out wheat in a wine press. Now for those of you who know how wine is made, it's not from wheat. Gideon is threshing out wheat in a place that is small and is used for stomping grapes. He's doing it so he can do it in hiding. Because if one of the Midianites sees him, they'll take his grain. He should be out in a giant threshing floor, smacking the grain against the floor to break loose the grain and the seeds, and then the chaff will blow off into the wind. But instead, he's in a tiny tub, beating out that wheat so that he can save it from the Midianites. The whole scenario shows Gideon's living in fear. He's afraid, but God meets him where he is. And even so, even so he's scared, what does God address him as? In verse 12, the Lord is going to use you, and he calls him, O mighty man of valor. He's speaking to a guy who is terrified and hiding, and he calls him a mighty man of valor. It's both prophetic for the things to come, but it's also an encouragement to Gideon for the task that God is laying before him. And now, As we see from Gideon, he's either not very perceptive or he's really brave because he gets really snarky with the angel of the Lord in this calling. And he says, if the Lord is with us, why is all this bad stuff happening? If the Lord is with us, why is all this happening? And this comes from a genuine place of hurt, and it's okay to have that. And we'll talk about that more in a second, but the Lord tells him, that he's going to use him to free Israelites, to free the Israelites and defeat the Midianites. And Gideon's reaction is one that all of us struggle with. I'm not worthy, Lord. I'm not worthy. He says, but I'm from Manasseh. I'm from the weakest. I'm the weakest clan in Manasseh. The word he uses here, the Hebrew word is dao. It's actually the root word for Dallas Cowboys, to be weak and poor. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I might have just got fired for that. So, the Hebrew word Dal actually has nothing to do with Dallas, but it does mean poor, low, weak. Some said thin. Wait a second. Basically, all the terms that you would describe the, the person that was probably picked last for dodgeball at recess. This is how the world defines worth. And Gideon bought into that lie. Me? I'm from the lowest. I'm from the worst. How could you use me? It's my senior year of high school. We were in the soccer team, and I was captain of that soccer team, but we were losing to our crosstown rival, and I was really frustrated. I was trying super hard. I was mad because the goals we gave away were just silly mistakes that shouldn't have happened. 
And I'm running down the field, and, like, I'm playing striker, which for those of you who don't know, that's the guy at the top of the field. And I run all the way back to make a tackle just because I'm angry and I'm filled with rage that we're losing. And I make a tackle over by the coach on the sideline, and I steal the ball. And my coach says to me, that a boy, Corey, way to fight. Way to fight. And I turn to my coach as I'm dribbling off, and I scream back at him, yeah, well, it's too bad I'm the only one trying yeah, most people, ooh. In mine, I was like, that'll show my team, you know. <laughs> I was the captain of that team. After the game, I was no longer the captain of that team. My coach took the armband from me, and for me, I felt like, well, there goes my identity. There goes my worth. There goes everything I'd worked so hard for. I was still part of the team, I still started, I still played. We still won plenty of games. But something I learned that day is that I didn't choose my own worth or my own identity. My coach had the authority to bestow that on me. And for Gideon, there's only one person that defines his worth, and it's not him. It's not the nation of Israel. It's not his clan. It's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So the world may say, you're the least, you're the weakest, But God says, oh no, you are a mighty man of valor, and I'm going to use you for my glory. See, it's just like God to flop things on their heads. The world says something's worthless, and he makes it worthy. He makes the young shepherd boy a king. He makes the Lord of all creation a servant to all of creation. We're not defined by our Facebook friends, our Instagram posts, our success at our job, We're also not defined by our struggles, our temptations, our addictions, idolatries. You see, God sees weakness and makes it strong. God makes the unrighteous righteous. We're defined by our Heavenly Father, and this is something that Gideon has to learn. And as he goes on in verse 17, he's struggling with his calling. Okay, God, you say I'm a mighty man of valor. I'm still not sure about this whole deal. I'm still, not, I'm still not bought in to everything you're telling me. And in verse 17, he says, If I've found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign. Just like David had said, so many of us, how many of us are waiting for a sign? Most of us would say, it'd be really cool if I could get one of those. Where do I sign up? Can I get it on Amazon? Where can I get a sign from the Lord? In verse 18, he, he asked the angel of the Lord, please don't leave. I'd love a sign, but I'm, I'm going to do something to see if you'll give me that sign. And he leaves and he goes and he gets a young goat and he prepares that goat. And what it means there is he, he kills that goat and prepares it according to Israelite tradition for sacrifice before the Lord. And he builds an altar at that place and he puts the goat on those rocks. And the angel of the Lord says, pour the broth over the goat. And the angel of the Lord instructs him to do that for several reasons. One, broth is wet, and wet things don't catch on fire very easily. He says, pour the broth over that, because I'm going to show you that even in the midst of this, even with a wet sacrifice, God can do great things. And so the angel of the Lord takes his staff, and he touches the tip of the altar, and the goat is consumed. And then it says, the angel of the Lord 
vanishes from sight. I can only imagine the emotions going through Gideon's face at that moment. I can only imagine his thoughts. See, when he's, he first addresses the Lord, he even, he even tells the Lord, I don't even feel like you're with us. Why is all this happening to my nation? And so many of us ask that question, if God's there, why do bad things happen? Even after the promise of God's presence with them, Gideon still needs this reassurance. See, I need a sign, God. I'm doubting. I'm struggling. I don't know if I can live into this calling. See, when I was in college, um, I joined a fraternity. I loved my college freedom quite too much. Um, But some stuff happened in my life. I elevated people above the Lord. I didn't go to church. I didn't pray. I didn't open my Bible for several years. And I I hit a place of rock bottom. One of my friends invited me to church, and I was like, okay, I guess I'll go. And I went to church, and for the first time in a couple of years, I had an encounter with the Lord. And he basically said to me, are you ready to listen? And I was like, I think so. And he said, this whole marine biology thing, this whole fraternity thing, this isn't what I have for you. And I'm like, I got scholarships. I mean, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? And my prayer for the next several weeks became, God, if you want me to live into my calling, which I'm doubting, I need to be out of this place. I'm not strong enough in my faith to live in the fraternity house and to continue to follow after you. I need you to show me a sign. And a couple of weeks later, I actually got a call from a soccer coach. Weird that God would use soccer to pull me out. And he said, hey, Uh, I recruited you out of high school. Don't know if you remember me, but I would love for you to come to Faulkner University. We got some scholarships, and I need some upperclassmen. And I was like, weird, Lord. Faulkner University is a Christian school that has a a major in youth and family ministry. Um, Okay, Lord. Thanks for the sign. See, it's a stark contrast in Gideon's life, in my life, and in many of our lives, we read the, the Gospels, and for some of us, we get disheartened when we hear the calling of the disciples. Because when you hear Jesus say, follow me, they're not like, ooh, I'm not really sure. It actually reads, immediately, they dropped their nets and they followed after the Lord. And for some of us that didn't immediately drop our nets, we're like, we're not. Are we really good followers? Is God really calling us if I didn't immediately drop my stuff? I've heard it said in the church before that once you accept Jesus, don't ask questions, don't doubt, don't worry. If you do that, you're not really saved. And let me tell you that this morning, that is not true. That couldn't be further from the truth because God welcomes your doubts. He welcomes your concerns. He welcomes your questions. God has proved himself over and over and over again. God doesn't abandon Gideon just because he has doubts or asks for some reassurance. Just like Jesus didn't abandon Thomas when he doubted the resurrection. God doesn't abandon us. And see, the angel of the Lord consumes that offering and it says Gideon was afraid. He was afraid for his life. And the Lord commands him, don't be afraid. You're not going to die. 
He builds an altar at that place and he names it the Lord as peace. A little bit of peace. If you think you're about to die and the angel says, no, you're not going to die. <sighs> okay. I think I'm at peace with that. Thank you. Then he says, now take your father's bull and go knock down the altar of Baal that my people have been worshiping. See, Gideon's been charged with a call here. This is his first action that God has told him to do. And most of us think, that's not a big deal. Go knock down an altar, whatever. And it says that he did it, but he did it by night because he was afraid. See, this is a big deal because the Midianites, as it showed, it says they've been stealing the livestock and, and destroying the nation of Israel economically. And he says, take your father's bull, and that's a big deal because that's the family beast of burden. That is the beast that plows the field. That is the beast that carries everything. That is the prize bull. And God says, you're going to use it for me. You're also going to take a seven-year-old bull, an investment, the prize bull, and you're going to sacrifice it. You're going to kill it for me. Hold on a second, God. We're struggling. I don't really have a job. I have to beat out wheat in a wine press. And you want me to go knock down this altar that my whole community sees as sacred and they would be really angry if I knocked that down. But not only that, you want me to cripple my family's economy by doing this? You see, fear is an interesting thing. Several years ago, I was at a dinner um, with some of our, our seniors in the student ministry. Uh, we were at the fine establishment known as Whataburger. Um, and there was a man digging in the trash outside. Uh, and I was thinking to myself, oh gosh, a thought of fear. Hope he doesn't come in here and raise a scene. I've got six or seven of our guys in here and we're hanging out and I don't want to have to deal with that. And then I noticed they're kind of looking at him and talking to each other. And I was struck by the Lord. What are you doing? What are you doing? I love that guy. He had matted hair, tattoo sleeves, cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And I thought to myself, I think God wants me to go talk to him. So I asked our students, hey, any of you want to go say hey to him? Nope. <laughs> All right. I'll do it. I walk out there, and I met Mike, a.k.a. Spooky, was what his friends called him. And I sat down on the curb and I asked him if he wanted anything. And he said, I would love a number one. We can do a number one. So we, we got Mike a number one. And slowly but surely, our students kept getting their food and coming out. And we sat and ate our Whataburger on the sidewalk of Whataburger with our friend Spooky. And he told us stories about his family and where he was from. The whole point that I tell you that is not, oh, look at me, I was able to walk out there. No, my first thought was, oh gosh, I'm afraid that he's going to come in here and do something. But because I didn't fully give in to that fear, God was able to open up a door for ministry. We were able to pray with a guy that I've never seen again on the sidewalk at Whataburger. You see, fearful obedience is still obedience. We all struggle with doubts. We all struggle with fear. And Gideon, he sees fear throughout the rest of his life. Even the night before his battle with the Midianites, he is afraid. And God gives him that reassurance. It's okay to be afraid, but it's not okay to be afraid so much that we don't follow through with what God has called us to do. See, fear is all about perspective. 
See, my daughter, Holland, when she was younger, she's only two, so that wasn't long ago. Every time we would put her in the car seat and the sun would get in her eyes, it would be bloody murder screams and tears until the sun went away. And I tried with everything in me to get her to realize, you can do this and block the sun. Because your hand is bigger than the sun, right? No, it's not. Your hand's not bigger than the sun. Your hand's just closer to you than the sun is. And so often in our lives, we think that our problems, our anxieties, our worries, our idols, our enemies, and our fears are bigger than God can take care of. Because they're so close to us. But when you start to grow close to God, When you start to spend time with your Savior, you start to see and realize just how big our God is. And then our fears and our worries and our problems and everything else falls away in comparison. And so this morning I thank God that He defines our worth. He's not afraid of our doubts. And that when we're we're afraid, He's there walking with us each and every step of the way. And most of all, this morning, I thank God for his son who gave us life by giving his. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate that together in Holy Communion. And so as, as we do that, um, let's pray together. God, blessed are you who with your word and Holy Spirit created all things and called them good. In Jesus, your word became flesh and dwelt among us. Through Jesus' suffering and death, you took upon yourself our sin and death. And you raised from the dead this same Jesus who now reigns with you in glory and poured upon us your Holy Spirit, making us the people of your new covenant. On the night before meeting with death, Jesus took the bread. He broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then when the supper was over, he took the cup. He poured the wine and he said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of your mighty acts in Christ Jesus, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. God, we ask that you pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts, that in the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine, we may know the presence of the living Christ and be renewed as the body of Christ for the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at your table forever. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen.